After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. We've got Joe Healy here as well. And this is, I don't know, we can call this a Thanksgiving special of the Baseball America College Podcast. We will be joined also by Notre Dame coach Link Cherritt. And then after that, Joe and I are going to break down the Thanksgiving meal as if it were college baseball programs. If that sounds like high concept to you, stick around and hopefully you'll enjoy it. First, we have Link Cherritt with Notre Dame uh, coming over from UNC Greensboro in the offseason. He was a highly successful head coach at UNCG also an assistant coach at, at Florida State, Auburn, East Carolina throughout his career. Uh, one of the more respected hitting coaches in the game. Very high-powered offenses at UNCG over the years, even by SOCON conference standards. And UNCG plays in what in the SOCON is considered a pitcher's park. But his teams were very consistently at the top of the league offensively. So we are excited to talk with Link. Joe, it is Thanksgiving week. I, I know your Thanksgiving, as you mentioned on the, the last podcast, is a little different this year. But we asked Nick Lofton last week. We're going to ask Link Jarrett this week what your favorite Thanksgiving dish is. We're going to talk a lot about Thanksgiving dishes later. But before we get there, what is your favorite Thanksgiving dish? First off, I will, um, I'm going to fire off probably the hottest take that has ever been spit into this microphone. If Thanksgiving food was that good, we'd eat it the rest of the year. My th- my Thanksgiving hot take is that considering this is the most anticipated meal of the year for most Americans, the food's just okay. Like nobody's like going to the store and finding like a turkey to throw in the oven in May, you know? Actually, um, my father, whose birthday is in May, <laughs> does that. But your so point it- overall it's almost like my point was just made to be to counter, <laughs> run counter to what you were going to say. Um, I promise it was not. Um, but I know that's a hot take and I'm not, not trying to be a hater. I'm really not. That being said, I, so if we're going to get away from the, I mean, the Turkey is the star of the show and, and I get that. And I think you can really do a lot of good work with the Turkey and really making the Turkey interesting. Like uh, do not fellow Americans feel trapped in just kind of cooking turkey in a traditional way, which ends up a lot of times being a little bit dry, maybe a little bland. There are a lot of things you can do to really dress that turkey up. So I would encourage people to do that. I've had some fantastic Thanksgiving turkeys at friends and family's houses that have that have been kind of interesting takes on it. So I would encourage you to kind of seek those out as well. On the side, though, I'm finally getting around to the question. 
this might sound boring, but I'm kind of a mashed potatoes guy. Um, I just always have been. I remember my mom. My mom used to make really good mashed potatoes when I was when I was a kid, and she always insisted on she never bought mashed potatoes from a box. Even if we were just having mashed potatoes on like a random Tuesday night, she was in there like peeling potatoes and mashing them because she insisted on that's the way she was going to do mashed potatoes. And she wasn't someone who typically, you know, she had, you know, she was a teacher and she taught with like an hour commute away from our house. So it's not like she was someone who typically was spending hours in the kitchen every night, but she insisted when we did mashed potatoes, she was going to make them like that. Um, so I think that's part of why that kind of, uh, that's my answer is because I think I just grew up getting really, a really good version of mashed potatoes. Uh, but that has continued even to, into adulthood for me. So Joe gave you his Thanksgiving hot take. My Thanksgiving hot take is that mashed potatoes are not good. I don't know. They're just boring. Don't do it for me. But I uh, do very much enjoy stuffing. Uh, if we're going sides, that's definitely, and honestly, it's better than the turkey. I like the turkey, but I would rather eat the stuffing. I think that the turkey can be made well. You don't, like, if you're roasting it and you're good at it, you can do it well and it's going to be good. But yes, like Joe, I endorse other alternative methods. They also leave you with fewer leftovers, which I know people really enjoy their turkey sandwich for a couple days, but like fewer leftovers of the bird is not necessarily a bad thing. So explore your options, although there will be people at your dinner that are expecting the full-on roast bird and are going to be disappointed if it's not there. So if you are hosting a dinner and are thinking about alternative options maybe advise the guests in advance just get that get that expectation level on the right level right from the jump yeah no i mean know your audience too is a big part of that you know if, if you've got if you're hosting family thanksgiving with the same family that you've had thanksgiving with your entire life like think about what you've had in the past and don't don't take like a sharp left turn unless everybody's kind of pushing you in that direction. Don't just make a sharp left turn for the sake of it. Know your audience a little bit. I think your guests will be appreciative. Know your audience is really just life advice. Just That's a good point. That really, yeah. That's I, like 90% of it, yeah. It is. So knowing our audience, you like that transition, knowing our audience, we are going to get to the college baseball. I want to mention for a second some things you can find on the website right now. If you are starving for college baseball content in November, a couple weeks ago, we released our... 2020 recruiting rankings looking ahead to the 2020 class top 15 classes full analysis of all of those classes can be found online there are a few other good college baseball pieces over at the website and of course our top 10 prospects for every organization those are rolling out we are into the central division uh, now wrapped up the east so if you're if you're looking for al or nl east top 10 prospects in the big leagues those can be found at baseballamerica.com for subscribers. And while you are there, check out the store, which can be found at store.baseballamerica.com, and look at Head of the Class, Baseball America's new college baseball book, out soon this fall, which, uh, and, and it looks back at the last four decades of college baseball. Great trip down memory lane for college baseball fans, which you are because you're listening to a college baseball podcast the week of Thanksgiving. And we very much appreciate that. So with that, get to our interview with Notre Dame head coach Link Jarrett. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're very happy to welcome in Notre Dame coach Link Jarrett. That is a, a new title for you, Link. Are, are you used to, to hearing people say that yet? 
I'm used to it. I'm excited about it. Feels good. Obviously, you're you're at a very special institution, and um, I'm very fortunate to be here. And yeah, I'm used to it. And we've we've got some work to do, but the the guys have been very receptive, and, and our staff has worked hard this fall to implement a lot of things that we need to try to get in there before we shut it down for the winter and you know recruiting has gone well so yeah we're, we're feeling good about it happy to be here and, and feel like it's the right move yeah you've now been in notre dame at notre dame for about four months uh after leaving unc greensboro following this last season i imagine that's a pretty whirlwind time between you know having to get out on the road and recruiting and learning your new team and then that rolls into fall ball, and somewhere in there you had to find time to move. Have things started to slow down for you now a little bit? Well, you know, the hiring of the staff is really the most important piece of, of what you're doing when you when you get a job like this. And Rich Wallace is the recruiting coordinator who has been at Creighton and JU and High Point, actually came here from Jacksonville University. He's built really good rosters at three private schools and getting him on board to help navigate, you know, what this landscape is like now with recruiting. So he's taken that over. It's been great. And Scott Wingo, who played at South Carolina, um, he's on board as our volunteer assistant. And to bring two national championships and the MVP of the World Series, just to have that type of person in your program that brings a very – extravagant record and uh, such a taste of winning at a high level to have him around our guys every day is really important to me and important to our, our program. And then Chuck Rostano has been at Notre Dame for, this will be his 10th year. So he knows the lay of the land here and, and has a pretty good grasp on where we are with the kids that were already committed. And obviously the roster that, that we have in place now. So that, that was the, the biggest piece of it for me was, the second half of the summer, making sure you get your staff in place, and then you try to continue. The recruiting never stops. like It, it doesn't ever end, so you're trying to just add and build, and, and knowing your roster and what you think you need is important for that 20 class, and you know you have a little more flexibility when you recruit the young guys. But, um, yeah, the back end of the summer was, was more staff-related and recruiting-related. Haven't moved yet. My daughter's a senior in high school, and we're going to let her finish in Greensboro, um, we didn't feel like it was fair to, to move her in the middle of her senior year. So we're going to let her finish. My wife has been back and forth, and obviously JT plays at NC State. So everybody's in good shape. Um, really just trying to, to get our culture and our system implemented and keep nailing the recruiting. You mentioned it a little bit already, but Notre Dame is a place with a lot of history and a lot of tradition, not just from a baseball standpoint, but just as an institution. What does it mean for you to be a part of that, and what has that been like for you so far? It's inspiring. You look at the value of this degree. You look at the people that have put on this uniform. You look at um, the Golden Dome and the football stadium and the names and the walls and the baseball stadium and the people that have coached here before takes your breath away a little bit every day. And you walk around like we have a function over in the athletic department today. And the people that you'll associate with that are part of the athletic department or were former players for any number of teams at Notre Dame, it's really a special, unique vibe that you have when you're around here. 
the football atmosphere tremendous from a recruiting standpoint. People that have a true urge to have a comprehensive experience in college, academics at this level, and the value of the degree and what it does for you down the road, and obviously playing in the, the ACC. Um, there's 8,000 students here, and every one of them have earned the right to get here, and it's not easy to get here. And, you know, all guys work very hard. So you feel that in everything you do on this campus and with people. You know, you're traveling in the airport and you have a Notre Dame shirt on and people want to know about Notre Dame. And people that are not associated with Notre Dame are intrigued by the mystique of Notre Dame and what it stands for in history. So it's really a very, very neat atmosphere from a working standpoint and also just from a a culture standpoint that surrounds the whole place. Really neat. I'm curious, and I know as a coach, you, you probably try not to read too much into one single fall, especially your first one, but I'm curious what your first impressions were of your team and what stood out to you the most um, as you finally got a chance to, to get in there and work with your guys. Well, we have some, some experienced arms, and we didn't dial them all the way up. Um, Cam Brown, senior lefty, Tommy Sheehan, junior lefty, um, Tommy Vale, another junior lefty. Uh, Joe Boyle, I mean, he's a Cape all-star, throws 100 miles an hour. And, and we didn't try to extend these guys this fall just because they logged a lot of innings for Notre Dame in the last couple of years and, and into the summer. So you've got to like the framework of what you have on the mound coming back. Um, and then we have another big left-handed pitcher that's also a right-handed hitter that is number 84 on the football team. He's a heck of a tight end. Um, but all along from the first time I met him this summer when I was hired, like he wants to play baseball. He loves baseball. He loves football. So that's been his plan all along. And, uh, you know, hopefully he gets back out here to play because you can look at the numbers and it's very, very good left-handed stuff. So you have to like the nucleus of the staff Position player-wise, we have to be a more defensive-oriented team. Defense had not been good enough. It was not great this fall. I think we can get better. I've experimented with moving some of our guys around a little bit to try to find a, a position for them that might suit them a little bit better. Um, we have some guys that can swing the bat. Um, I would put our pitching a little bit ahead of our, our defensive and offensive capabilities right now, and that 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 can change in you know, month to month or obviously year to year. But from what I saw, especially when you have that many left-handed arms that, that have good stuff, I mean, that gives you a, a foundation to roll out there and stay in some games. Uh, defensively, you can look at last year's numbers, not good enough defensively to really help that pitching staff excel. And I feel like they can. So trying to move some people around a little bit and, um, get a little bit more athleticism on the field is, is really what I feel like we can do right now with the personnel we have to, to make this thing move a little bit. You mentioned uh, Cole Komet there, uh, you know, being a two-sport guy, and he's having a really nice season for the football team right now. Got a, got five touchdowns. I know he was out for the first couple games, but but he's come back looking pretty good there for the football team. What What do you like about watching him? on the football field, and what do you think about the two-sport guys in general? Obviously, it's really hard to do, but uh, you know, is that something that you've had any experience with before? Well, as a player, we had a bunch of them at Florida State, um, and I, I didn't have 
Um, at Auburn, you know, we had a couple guys that tried it, but it didn't really, it didn't really stick. And we recruited some, you know, with Jameis Winston. That that was something we were on at Auburn. So you you kind of have a a reference point of what their calendar's like and what they need to do. From Cole's standpoint, he's such a good strike thrower on the mound that he doesn't need a lot of extra stuff from a pitching standpoint to get himself ready other than the progressions with the arm care to build the arm up so he's ready to go um, when baseball season starts. He was going to be drafted as a hitter, uh, right-handed hitter. And, you know, you can look at the pitching numbers and, and instantly realize how good he can be on the mound. I mean, last year, I think he shoot, it was 19 innings and three walks and 27 punch outs. Um, I don't know if he's quite ready to take the workload that he that he took on the mound. So that, again, we've made an effort to try to get him prepared. Um, I mean, he's got to do it on his own, but he goes in our cage at night when when he's available to do so and throws. So number one, you like the work ethic. I mean, this guy's into it. Like football is demanding by itself. It's very demanding on your body, your mind, and your time. Um, but he's such a special individual that he still takes time for himself to go in there and do his throwing indoors. Um, he's six six two fifty. When you watch him move on the football field and look at his hands and how he handles the football, um, you think there's tremendous hand-eye coordination that you would feel he could jump back in there in baseball and, and go to the outfield and not be too far removed with his athleticism to figure it out quickly. The thing we don't know um, are just the live at bats. He, he really is interested in hitting, pitch recognition, and uh, handling the off speed stuff at this level would be where we have to try to get his learning curve sped up so that he can acclimate himself to that. You know, that's something he wants to do. So, and he's just one of the most unique individuals and one of the most excellent athletes you'd ever come across to be that caliber of tied in with mobility and agility and also go on the mound and pound the zone with a really good slider. So the sky's the limit for Cole, and it, it would obviously help our program a lot to have him involved. Absolutely. he's uh, He's been fun to watch just whatever he's done uh, in the, the last few years at Notre Dame there. You, you mentioned talking about uh, teaching hitting a little bit there, and, and that's one thing that, that has been consistent throughout your, your coaching tenure is just you've always had a really strong track record as, as a hitting coach. What, what kind of is your philosophy when you're teaching hitting to, to these players? Well, each guy's individual. And like this morning, we just finished one of our skill sessions hitting wise. And we're in the fourth week of that. And each week we come up with a different little set of drills that we've studied their swing and studied the things that they did all fall in the scrimmages. And then I try to individualize what I think they need from, a technical standpoint, and then also from a role standpoint. You've got some guys that have to be proficient with the bunning game and the hit-and-run stuff, and then you have some other players that may not do much of that at all. So it's budgeting the time and really pinpointing what they're going to do as a player and then what their specific needs are, I think, is where we've made the most headway. And Obviously, swing is one part, but your approach and your plan and having some weapons mentally to go to as you try to navigate really good arms to put yourself in a position to have a chance to, to do some damage. And then when you get to two strikes to have, have a plan of attack to, to navigate and survive those two strike counts and put the ball in play. I, I really value putting the ball in play more so with two strikes. Obviously you, you're not up there. Oh, in a, in a two strike type feel, 
But when you get the two strikes in college, putting that ball in play, and anything can happen when it's in play. So we still put a premium on that two-strike hitting and um, just try to have variety in our offense so we can use our short game, we can run the bases at a high level, we can try to situational hit when we need to. Um, but from an athlete standpoint, it's, it's individualizing what we do. So each guy had a couple things off the tee, a couple different things in the front toss, a couple different things when we throw to them, if we can go on the field, same thing when we throw, they, they have different things that they're working on. And, and we use our machine and we hit a lot of breaking pitches off the machine and there's a way to do it off the machine that we really feel like works for the kids. And that's what we do. So I've been doing the same thing for about the last 12 years offensively. And, um, you know, it's worked and hopefully it, it continues to work for us. I actually want to take you back to your UNC Greensboro days for for just a little bit. I, I'm curious with the success you guys had there, particularly over the last the last four years you were there. Was there a particular point in time where you were able to kind of look up and realize, okay, we we've, we've really got this thing cooking right now? Because you know it's not an easy thing to do at, at the mid major level to really be consistent year over year over year. And I, I'm just curious from your standpoint if you were able to kind of feel maybe when it had clicked fully. I had 2016. You know, you, you get into the middle of that season and you go play at Coastal Carolina and, and you beat them. And Illinois had been in Super Regionals the year before. I think they were in there in 2015, won 50-something games. And we played some really good games in that tournament at Coastal. And um, Illinois had a guy that was drafted in the first round. I think it was Sedlock was his last name. And the way our guys handled him I mean, really handled him. Um, it was probably one of the best offensive games I've ever coached. That tournament for me um, was the the point where I realized, hey, the recruiting, I, there's, a, there's a, a big percentage of this is on recruiting. Well, once you had a, two recruiting classes and got really your roster and your style of player in there, um, combined with what you're trying to do to help the kids perform better from a coaching standpoint that that's when it started to move a little bit and uh, I would say that tournament uh, was pivotal for us and, and me stepping back and saying you know what we've got this thing in pretty good shape now and we battled injuries like I think we lost Moritz at the end of that season we didn't have him for the stretch run at Shelton I think both of those guys went down um, one with a broken foot foul ball one with a hit by pitch broken arm so had we had we had those two all year, that that 2016 team might have been really really something special. Um, that that's when it hit me, honestly. That that Coastal Carolina trip 2016, probably the second or third weekend of the of the season, and I sensed that these guys had it figured out a little bit. You talked about how that team was, was close to being special. One team that definitely was special, at least as far as the regular season goes, was that 2018 team. And, and for my money, was probably the best team to get left out of a regional that year. And um, those are kind of the breaks at the mid-major level. And I, I'm kind of curious from your standpoint. I mean, obviously that was had to be a tough pill to swallow. But I'm curious if you if you feel like there's there should be more weight given to teams of the mid-major who are able to pile up wins like that. I mean, I, I'm certainly not trying to put you on the spot or anything here. But I'm I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts on – uh, the role in trying to reward teams like that 2018 UNCG team that was just so good, yeah. so consistent throughout yeah. the year. Well, I, I guess if I had to evaluate this, and, and we do, some of the coaches in the SOCON, when we try to figure out how to schedule and what do you do, um, 
we played a lot of home games, and um, people would come to you. You know, you had northern teams that would come to you. Um, the RPI structure um, for road wins in baseball is skewed a little high for the road win. I, I, if I remember our discussion correctly, it, it gives a little more value to a road win than actually the percentage of road wins that there are in baseball. Like, I don't think the road team is at uh, as a distinct a disadvantage as I, I believe it was the basketball model that they used originally um, to kind of construct our RPI stuff. So um, w- there's always talk about what you do with your with your schedule because yes, that that team was was really really strong, like top to bottom. Arms were good, defensively, athletic, and offensively enough there to, to really hang in there and compete with anybody that we came across. I will tell you the difficulty of that level is every game you play, every inning, every single game, if it doesn't go right, like it didn't go right in the conference tournament. I mean, Western played out of their minds. Um, our Friday night guy had his worst start of the year, probably of his career. And all of a sudden, we're in a loser's bracket of an eight-team double elimination tournament, and you don't, nobody's got enough weapons to dig back out, out of that. So the pressure on each inning and each game, whether it's Tuesday, Friday, it, every one of those games was so important. So it does add up, and it is tricky at that level to go out there every single day knowing what rides on. If you lose a Tuesday game, you're done. Like, it, it costs you your RPI, and that's that's tough. But it teaches you every day you better be prepared and you better come to perform every single day because one of those innings and one of those games could be what keeps you out. And unfortunately, that's really what happened to that team, and it came down to the end. And I was on the calls. Like, I was on the um, committee, subcommittee, and that evaluated the SEC and the SOCON and the um, Big South and the ASUN, and we had to go through it all. And you're looking at your metrics of your team and what you have, and, you know, you feel like you should be in there. And it's, it's, it is. It's, it's really disheartening at the end when you know it, it, it came up short and trying to figure out the metrics so it doesn't happen to you again is – what you try to do building your schedule. So tough stuff. And and now I guess uh, going back into the ACC, that will be a little bit less of a concern, but uh, different different challenges now. So we took you back to UNCG. I want to take you even further back now to your playing days at Florida State. You were a, a very successful player under Mike Martin. Uh, and of course, 11 reached retirement following this year. But just how influential uh, was that time for you, and, and how how much influential was Eleven on getting you into coaching? You know, I felt like Eleven um, helped me become a better player than maybe I was designed to be. Um, I wanted to go to school there. I was from there. That's where I wanted to play. And it was mid-June after my senior year of high school when they they found a spot for me on the team. And that that's how much recruiting has changed. That's <laughs> probably not happening today. But um, it happened, and I was just lucky more than anything else to, to get in there and get a chance to play early in my career on some really, really good teams. And I, I saw I saw how he, he would play guys and pitch guys that maybe weren't the most talented if you wanted to have a, some sort of pro-style workout, but he knew the intangibles and the little details it took to win college games, and that's – 
what he leaned on. And ultimately his job is to win college games. And he would put people, myself being an example, I could be in the right spot defensively. I could pick it up and throw it to first base. I could handle the relays. I could kind of coordinate what was going on defensively out there in the infield. And he knew that was important. And I probably wouldn't have graded out real well in any sort of workout environment. But in the game, I graded out okay. So we had guys that pitched like that too. Maybe the velocity wasn't there, but multiple pitches in any count, anything he wanted to throw, he could throw. He could navigate how he wanted to pitch to the opponent with those guys on the mound, and that's what he went with. And that's how you win that many games. It's a very consistent approach, um, and, and he was demanding on, on the things that he knew were required for you to win college games, and that's exactly what he did. So his management tactics and strategy and trust in his players, the ones that could do what he needed done, that's probably the foundation that, that – got me rolling into this was was simply his ability to do the things consistently that helped you win college games and trust you to do it once you proved you could do it then you know he kind of checked you off his list and and it was time to teach somebody else how to do those things but such a special teacher instructor and on top of that just a tremendous man everyone knows how much love i have for mike martin so always always great to hear those stories one more question for you today, Coach. We got Thanksgiving coming up. What is your favorite part of the meal? Is it turkey or is it one of the side dishes or, or one of the desserts? Slam dunk turkey. Slam dunk. No doubt turkey. It's, it's, I want that outside. It's got a little Christmas to it. Um, you got to have a mixture, I think, on your plate of some white meat, but also some of that dark meat. Not too much gravy, just a little bit of gravy. And I've already been discussing this with my wife because I will fly <laughs> home for Thanksgiving. And I hope that this large bird is prepared with all those components. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's right. a very sound strategy, I think. Thank you. I've got, to, I've got to be delicate with it, but I'm trying to get it to that point where I know that's how that bird comes out. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Well, best of luck to you with that. And uh, as we look ahead to the 2020 season, best of luck to you in, in your, your first year there at Notre Dame. And we really want to thank you for, for joining us here today on the Baseball America College podcast. Guys, thank you very much. Thank you for all you do for all of us in building our game and building our brand. I, you know, college baseball is continuing to grow. And without you guys making the effort to continue to expose us and the game and the sport and making it a big deal like we wouldn't be where we are so teddy and joe thank you guys very much well we uh we, we're happy to do it you guys do the hard work we're, we're just here to uh to provide some of that that amplification of, of that hard work you guys are doing so we love you, to hear that good job thank you very much coach all Thanks, right coach. happy thanksgiving Thank you again to notre dame head coach link jarrett for joining us here on the baseball america college podcast Joe, Notre Dame is in an interesting spot as Link takes them over under Mikayoki. They made the tournament uh, pretty infrequently, uh, which was kind of a step back from where they'd been in the past, especially in the pulmonary, pulmonary era uh, and the Pat Murphy era before that. What were your thoughts in the immediate on this Notre Dame team and then also looking forward, can Link get them back to, uh, to that level now that they're in the ACC, which makes things a little bit more difficult for the Fighting Irish. 
Yeah, I mean, Mickey Oki got got them off to a pretty good start. I mean, regional in year two, and it really looked like they were building something there, particularly on the mound. I mean, they just had arm at big arm after big arm after big arm come through there and just, you know, were really never quite able to put it together again in that same way. So I don't know this is a, a turnkey operation for Coach Jarrett. I mean, he mentioned really liking some of the pieces he had, particularly on the mound, which is not a surprise to hear him say, given the way Notre Dame continued to uh, recruit and develop pitchers. But um, I don't think it's a turnkey thing, especially in the ACC. It's 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 not a conference that's really ripe for a usurper to come out of nowhere in that same way. But I, I like the chances of, of him getting it turned around. And I think you can have success at Notre Dame. There are some challenges. Um, and they're, they're plentiful challenges, to be honest. I mean, I'm not sure which is further north, Pitt or Notre Dame, but either way, it is it's one Notre of, Dame. Yeah. So it's the most northern or perhaps well, next BC. most north. Oh, BC. Good call. Yeah. BC is probably a little bit. But either way, point being, uh, geography and weather is always going to be a little bit of an issue at Notre Dame. It's also a school that's tough to get into. The academics are rigorous. It is expensive to go there. You know, you've heard all these these things before when it comes to uh, private schools in college baseball. So they have all of those things as well. But to the point that he made, I mean, there's a certain subset of players who really wanted to go, um, you know, really want to go to Notre Dame, Um, you know, grew up kind of dreaming of going to Notre Dame or just Notre Dame has been a big part of their uh, their upbringing, whether their parents went there or not. I mean, you see Notre Dame football, even in years when Notre Dame is not particularly good in football, you see them all over television. It's just a brand you're very familiar with. And I think that that gives them a little bit of a leg up over another generic program in that region, in the ACC, with the with the, the resources that they have. So I also, one thing I really like about Link Jarrett being in charge there is, you, you know, with you kind of went through his resume a little bit and it's the, he's the type of coach that could have probably hung out in the Southeast. I mean, that's where his background was and got a a job on the level with Notre Dame at some point and and kind of gone that route. But instead he's taking a chance uh, to come to the Midwest and kind of restart something or try to uh, re-energize a place um, that kind of needs to be re-energized. And I always appreciate when coaches do that because I think it's a bet on themselves uh, to kind of maybe get out of the geographic area um, that they know best. But also I think it's a, a bold move on the part of Notre Dame. I think it, it's really easy sometimes to kind of have a closed mind to the types of coaches you want to bring into your program, and you typically don't look far beyond your own uh, your own area. So I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a, a good bit of um, uh, imagination on both parts to, to, to have this pairing. And, and I like his chances to get something turned around there. And before I turn it back to you, I want to correct something it was not year two it was year two in the ACC for Notre Dame getting into regional not year two under Mick Aoki I was misreading the uh little results column there so just a, a correction on the fly well it is interesting I think from a higher an interesting hire from the perspective that you're talking about definitely but also when you look at Notre Dame in recent years like you were saying it's been very pitching heavy and Link is a hitting guy as we talked about and so I think that if you can marry those two things, Chuck Rostano stays as the pitching coach, and then Link is able to get the offense going, maybe you can have the best of both worlds, and that would really benefit the program. So I, I, that's going to be something to watch is how the offense develops, and are they able to continue to get the kinds of arms they've been getting? Because when you look at it right now, if you look at the 2020 the way they line up in 2020, the best part of that team is definitely going to be the pitching staff. So can they get all of that functioning together? And if they can then, then I think they can be pretty competitive moving forward. 
in the immediate 2020 might be a little tough. The ACC looks really deep this year. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to get things working on the fly, it's going to have to come together pretty quick because the, the ACC as a whole looks very strong this season. So not the easiest time to be trying to break through. But at, moving forward, I, I feel like Notre Dame has the potential to, to break through into, uh, into the power structure a little more than, than they have up to this point. It's not going to be easy as one of the more northern programs. I'm also going to be very interested to see how they recruit moving forward. They're a school that can recruit nationally. You know, what does that look like with, uh, with Link Jared in charge of, of that recruiting operation? That, that's definitely something to watch. And another thing he did really well, though, at UNCG was developing players who, you know, went under the radar a little bit. And at Notre Dame, maybe you have to do that because relative to some of the teams that you're competing with in the league, even in a national recruiting environment, you know, UNC, for instance, recruits pretty nationally. If you go up against UNC, it's going to be hard to win that battle right now. So maybe you have to be able to, to, to go a little more under the radar and find some guys and develop some guys, at least as you're building the program. And, and Link would be a good guy to do that. So that, that's all going to be very interesting to see. One of the biggest things this year, I think, is going to be getting Joe Boyle on track. Like Link mentioned, he throws 100 miles an hour. Control has been an issue the last couple of years, though. It's a big deal for Notre Dame to get him on campus. Um, it's been hard for them to get him into a big role because of his control issues the, over the first two years of his career. But he had a nice summer on the Cape, and if that was him turning a corner, then uh, that would be a really nice piece for Notre Dame to have, whether that's at the back of a bullpen or in a starting role. Uh, no matter what, that that's a that's a big time arm, and you know I'm very excited to see what Cole Komet does because he's one of the most athletic players in the country. You watch him play tight end, and it's he's an incredible athlete there. And then you put that on the baseball field, and it, it's awesome to see. So I, those two pieces are kind of wild cards right now, but if they work in Notre Dame's favor, uh, and Komet of course has played a pretty significant role on the pitching staff already in his career. If those two things work in Notre Dame baseball's favor, they might be a little bit in a position to surprise some people in the ACC. Yeah, and they were, I mean, they were already a little bit frisky last year. I mean, there was, you could kind of squint hard enough and, and see that, you know, if, if a couple of games went here or there, and, you know, they finished six games under overall, so they were, they would have had to, you know, get over 500 to even be considered in, in an at large discussion or what have you. But, Point being is that uh, you know it wasn't a bottoming out last year. You know they they were they were frisky last year and, and um, you know competed well in the ACC, finished thirteen and seventeen. And so to your point, I mean it, it probably won't take necessarily miracles to make this team a little bit more competitive. Now whether that means regional or not in twenty twenty to the point you and I have both made is that that seems a little bit more unlikely. But but starting to show a proof of concept of what Lake Jarrett, what's Notre Dame to look like under his leadership, um, I think we could certainly see that in 2020. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, that that's entirely possible. And if uh, if it turns into something a little bit bigger, I wouldn't be stunned. I would assume at that point that the pitching staff was one of the better ones in the ACC, that that's probably how they're doing it. And, and maybe maybe it arrives a little early in that case. But uh, that's that's going to be an interesting program to watch going forward. There's potential there. But there are also uh, some some challenges just in terms of geography and, and all the things that Joe was mentioning. It, it makes it a lot harder 
when you're in a conference like the ACC where you have to compete with with teams like Florida State and Miami and UNC and, and all of the great programs uh, that the ACC has to offer. So we will be keeping an eye on Notre Dame in 2020 and beyond as Link Cherit tries to put his stamp on uh, on that program. Well, it is Thanksgiving week here, and like I mentioned, this might be our Thanksgiving special episode. So, so with that, I don't know, I was kicking around the idea of trying to make a Thanksgiving meal out of college baseball programs. So for this, Joe and I are going to, we're, we're going to take each dish of a Thanksgiving meal, like compare it to a program that, that we think lines up with the dish. This is a little free form. Joe has a different opinion of mashed potatoes as I do, obviously. Uh, and you know, we, how you see the dish in the meal is open for d- interpretation. Uh, so Joe and I are both going to try and explain how we see the dish and then why the program that we've selected for it lines up. So hopefully we can have some fun with this. It is Thanksgiving. It is all about the food here, but we can uh, we can find a way to relate this all back to, to college baseball, I think. So Joe, are you ready for this? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So we're going to start with the turkey, obviously the the main course of the thanksgiving meal and so for me the the college baseball turkey at this thanksgiving meal is vanderbilt they're the reigning national champions and they are a very worthy main course as as we look at this i think that's a good answer it's certainly a a direction i decide or i uh, debated going i'm actually going to go lsu for a lot of the same reasons um, but I, I guess I'm taking a little bit of a longer view. You know, uh, Turkey is the institution. It's the headliner. It stood the test of time. And in modern college baseball, that program, I think, for me, is LSU. Also a great choice. Six national titles. Hard to argue at the, at the center of the table. All right, we're moving on. We got stuffing. And I know some of you people call it dressing. I refer to it as stuffing because I'm from the Midwest. And to me... This is maybe the best part of the meal. Like I said, it's my favorite dish at Thanksgiving. And I, I just, this is a big part of the meal for me. I think it's hard to mess up whether you make real, like whether you're out there with the dried bread yourself or whether you're opening stovetop, like I'm there for it. So I, I, I think it's really consistent. It's often excellent. Interestingly, Joe took the historic perspective on the turkey, I'm now taking the historic perspective. So for me, the stuffing historically is Texas. You know, it, it's it's often excellent. It is always consistently, uh, you know, in the mix in, on a national scale. And as a bonus here, I love eating in Austin and I love eating stuffing. I would probably love eating stuffing in Austin, though I have not done that to this point. Uh, so that's where I went. Joe, what do you got? This is actually one where we picked the same program. So I went Texas. I, you know, I put, you know, it's still a stuffing, still a staple of the meal, uh, but maybe a, a just a tick behind uh, the turkey in terms of its placement in the meal. I think it's a solid, you know, it's it's the second item. Like it's turkey and stuffing. Those two things go together. Texas, with some of its inconsistencies lately, including, you know, what we talked about last episode, finishing last in the Big 12 last year, maybe just a little bit more inconsistent of late. That's why LSU gets the nod as the headliner, Texas right behind him. Fully understandable. I also, uh, since you mentioned how turkey and stuffing go together, I want to mention here, 
we're not going to talk about gravy. Gravy goes with turkey. They are inner. You can't have turkey without the gravy. It's, it doesn't work. So for anyone that is gets concerned at the end of this when we haven't talked about gravy, that's because gravy and turkey go together. It's one unit. Cranberries. Intr- I, I'm not specifying whether this is cranberry sauce or the cranberry sauce from a can, which low-key is really good. Uh, it's just cranberry cello. So cranberries are kind of tart. They need a little bit of sugar to take the edge off. I'm going with Arizona State, uh, which is often seem to kind of embrace a, a villain is harsh, but, you know, a, a more black hat role. You know, under Pat Murphy, they, they were very happy to get under everyone's skin. And I feel like they still have a little bit of that edge in their current program. They play with a lot of swag and they really don't care who, who is concerned about that. I think Tracy Smith has a tendency to kind of shake things up. It's not quite like get under other other people's skin. So I, I think that that Arizona State is is my cranberries here. I think it's actually a really good pick. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, I think I think you're right. It's a program with some edge on it for sure. So I went USC for uh, so we we looked at this one completely differently, and I think that makes it interesting. But I see cranberries, and this might be my upbringing coloring my 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 answer here but cranberries were not a huge part of my family's thanksgiving but i was always aware it was something that people did and so i kind of see cranberries as maybe something that's not as prominent in thanksgivings as it once was but it's still something people associate with it so usc being a program that i think uh, those who follow college baseball know that they really had uh, you know their heyday but as of late have not been able to recreate that I compare that to cranberries with, you know, it's something that's been a part of the meal for a really long time and and maybe, and this could just be my perception of it, but maybe isn't as much of a staple as it once was. I like it. I don't know how we can speak to whether cranberries are or are not as big of a deal, but I do like the idea of relating USC to, to them in that, in that context. I'm, I would be okay if cranberries weren't as big a part of Thanksgiving, you know, like they're good. they're not to me they're not essential but they're always they're there you know yeah i I don't i just yeah again we never really had it growing up so i you know i knew it was a part of it but i never really quite understood why either it's just kind of interesting (laughs) addition to uh what is otherwise a savory uh meal typically so yeah it's kind of an interesting addition but it just never never was really part of it and so i I, maybe i would love it i don't know but i've never really had the opportunity all right well we're going to move on to mashed potatoes and as previously stated, they are not my favorite, but I do understand that they are an integral part of the meal. I also think that there's like kind of an everywhere quality to them. Like they're, they're, not, they're not just for Thanksgiving. Like people eat mashed potatoes a lot. A lot of people like them. They have definitely stood the test of time, even though they're not the most flavorful thing on the, di- on, on, on the table, you know? If you want flavor, you're probably not going to the mashed potatoes, but you need them there, and and they're they've always been there. They feel like they always will be there. For me, that's Minnesota, especially uh, you know in, in the Big Ten, they they are so consistent. When you look at you know just over the decades, just how how much they have won. You go back to Dave Winfield taking them to the College World Series. They were in a super regional in 2018. They won a ton of Big Ten titles in between those two things. Uh, and, and it feels like they're just going to keep winning in the Big Ten, that they are you know, 
we've talked about how on this podcast how good Michigan is going forward. I mean, Minnesota's not going anywhere though. I don't I don't feel like I I just feel like they're they're the kind of mashed potatoes of this college baseball world. That's fair. And and I think this is where we see the difference in, in the way we view mashed potatoes because I went Florida <laughs> I went I went Florida State. Um, not as heralded as Turkey, or in this case, LSU, obviously Florida State missing uh, those national championships, uh, but incredibly consistent. Florida State is nothing if not consistent and a crowd pleaser. I think, um, you know, for the most part, people are very pro Mike Martin, and obviously we're now moving into a post Mike Martin world. But I think Mike Martin's favorability rating was pretty high, even among fans of rival programs. You know, certainly they, they would give him a hard time about the lack of national titles, but I think just his personality in general is thought of very positively. And I think that's mostly how people view mashed potatoes, just consistent, a crowd pleaser, people like him. just maybe doesn't have the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Just the pizzazz. The pizzazz. Thank you. Yes. Not quite the pizzazz in this case, championships of an LSU or a Texas. All right. Now we've got sweet potatoes and Joe, in what form do sweet potatoes take at, at your Thanksgiving in an ideal world? Well, so I'm not a big sweet potato guy. The way they do take, well, if it were up to me, <laughs> if it were up to me, they'd be sweet potato fries. <laughs> but I know that's not that's not really a Thanksgiving staple. So I will allow that that is a bit of an out, you know, uh, an outside. I will say that that's an upgrade. That 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 is the way I would take them as well. Maybe yeah. we should, maybe we need to start that. In my yeah, no, I'm all for it. Yeah, my uh, my family though. They all, everyone but me loves sweet potatoes, but the way they do them is they do like the very candy sweet sweet potatoes. So it's like the sweet potatoes that are like super whipped, like whipped into submission. So they're like almost like pudding consistency. And then they put like a cinnamon, like crumble kind of thing on top of it. Um, so they're very sweet. And like the, my family has never understood why I don't like them. Cause as a kid, that sounds like it would be outstanding, right? Sweet potatoes are already sweet. And then you add this like kind of candy crumble on top of them. But I, I just, they never clicked for me. So um, they used to always say like, well, you don't need dessert because you've got these, uh, you know, these sweet potatoes that are, that are so, that are sweet as dessert. And, you know, I, my, I would just like, can I just please get dessert? Like, I don't want these, but <laughs> so yeah, I'm not on that either. Yeah. Just not a big, not a big sweet potato guy overall, but I, I will allow that uh, they are very popular. Yeah. So the casserole has made an appearance also like lately though, it's just been like straight up sweet potatoes baked, like put whatever you want on them. And people seem to like that too. in my family, I don't know. I tenderly stare clear of these, but I do understand that sweet potatoes tend to be very bold, lots of flavor, like we're talking about, you know, just a really kind of feels like an in-your-face dish. Like, no matter how you do it, like, there's a ton of flavor here. In contrast to the mashed potatoes, there's a lot going on here. Very popular with a lot of people. For me, that's Louisville. Louisville, uh, at, we saw at the World Series, they play with a lot of emotion, a lot of bold. You see their uniforms. They're they're out there. They're they're uh, you know they're in your face, and uh, a lot of people are are really into that. And so for me, Louisville is is the sweet potatoes here. So I think of sweet potatoes as kind of a usurper. You know, when you look at the the traditional Thanksgiving items, you know, your turkey and your stuffing, and you know green beans, which we'll get to in a little bit like we talked about with cranberries, like it's a little bit of a strange fit. You wouldn't expect sweet potatoes to be a part of that mix, especially when you consider that mashed potatoes are probably just the more popular potato option if you took a straw poll of people who eat Thanksgiving food. So in that case, it's kind of 
you know, it's just kind of interesting that, that they ended up having the role that they do at a Thanksgiving meal. And so um, my comp for that is Coastal Carolina, because, you know, there are a lot of programs who have popped up and become, you know, uh, competitors on a national scale, but they haven't broken through and won that national title. We have some examples, Fresno State, obviously, in the past, but, you know, Coastal Carolina is the one to me that stands out because they really established themselves as a a player regionally and then nationally, and then they won a national title and they've stayed nationally relevant, whereas a a program like Fresno State has had its ups and downs since then. So I think the Chanticleer is the sweet potatoes of the college baseball world. Kind of a usurper, wasn't part of the typical power structure in the sport, but found their way there and is stuck there. I like it. We had, this is another kind of like, we're going to talk about green beans here. And also like sweet potatoes, they can take a few different forms depending on where where you're at geographically. We talked a little bit off pod about this, how in the South, seems like that's typically a green bean casserole. I, as a Midwesterner, often they were, oftentimes they were just like pretty straight up steamed green beans, you know, maybe, maybe a little something else in there. And Joe, you were saying, what, what is it that, that you had green beans most recently? It was, uh, it was a very Midwestern way of, of doing green beans. It was uh, green beans that were cooked with potatoes that had just been cubed. So it was like, green beans, cubed potatoes, and onions in a pot and just cooked like that and then served, um, which I think is probably the most Midwestern <laughs> way that you could serve green beans in a pot of potatoes. Uh, you need some mayonnaise in there or something. Right, right. I mean, it was it was good. Don't get me wrong. I eat it. I eat lots of it. But um, <laughs> yeah, but it was just uh, something I had not encountered growing up in on the Gulf Coast. I'll put it that way. All right. So the point here is that green beans are different. No matter where you are, so maybe you're listening to this and saying you're going to hear what we say, and you're like, well, "Green bean casserole is not that at all." Well, okay, I don't know. Green beans mean different things to different people. So for me, I like I, I look at them as something that that always manages to be at the table. Uh, but you're kind of like, "Why are you here?" You know, it's usually the one green thing on the table at Thanksgiving. Maybe you have Brussels sprouts too, or or, or something like that, but. Green beans are there because they're green and you need a vegetable. I think that, that seems to be the, the reason for it. They're necessary for balance in that regard. You know, it can't just all be the starch and, and, and these fatty, you know, big dishes. You've got to have something that balances that out. And so for me, that's Fullerton. You know, Fullerton is kind of brings balance to the, to the college baseball world when they're at their best because, you know, in amidst all these big time athletic department schools like LSU and Texas, Florida, UCLA, you have Fullerton, which is this, uh, <laughs> this, you were talking about usurpers. I mean, Fullerton's kind of like the ultimate usurper that now is just a part of it. They've played themselves into that role. And, you know, they're this, this smaller school that doesn't have football, that no one outside of the college baseball world really associates with sports because they are a baseball school through and through. But, you know, I, I think they're kind of the green beans here. The, the, they're always there. Yeah, it might not make the most sense that they are there, but you need them for the balance. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's a good, a good take there. I actually have Fullerton for a, another item we'll discuss a little bit later, so that's interesting. For green beans, I went, so I was thinking of it from a green bean casserole standpoint, because that's what I grew up with. Most Thanksgivings I've been a part of have had a version of green bean casserole. I went with UC Santa Barbara. Because the green bean casseroles I've had, when they are good, they are really good. 
Um, and there are times when they've not been as consistent and haven't been as good. And I feel like at least in the last half decade, that's been Santa Barbara. You know, they get to Omaha, then they have a couple of down years where you start to kind of wonder, well, was that a mirage? And then just when you start to really have those questions, they pop up. And last year they were really, really good again. And, you know, we're just a couple breaks away from from hosting. And, and once they host, you know, you, you anything can happen. They could have easily been in Omaha again last year. So uh, really good when they're good, just not as consistent. That's where I put green bean casserole, UC Santa Barbara. Every Thanksgiving meal has some sort of bread, roll, cornbread situation going on. Maybe all of the above. Uh, we're just lumping them all into one category here the starchy thing you get to pick up and eat, uh, whether that's a roll, piece of cornbread, whatever. So there's already a lot of starchy kind of things on this menu. Got mashed potatoes already, got stuffing already, but you need this one. You, you need the roll for to, to round out the meal. And so I'm going with Auburn. There are already a ton of really good programs in the SEC. But Auburn has found a way into the meal or into the, into the mix, uh, as it were, and you know they they've established themselves under Butch Thompson as as uh, you know very quickly they they've found a way into the power structure in the SEC and therefore nationally. So that's the way I kind of see it. You know something that you know yeah it, it might be a little redundant in in terms of balance, but they they're they're a very worthy part of it and ultimately a necessary piece of it uh, of the meal as a whole. So I think sometimes the rolls are the sneaky star of the meal. I don't know about you, but I've sat down at Thanksgiving meals every so often. I'll step, sit down at a Thanksgiving meal and I'll, I'll take a bite of Turkey and I'll think, "Uh Oh, like this may not, (laughs) this may not go great because Turkey, like we talked about Turkey is easy to, to dry out and not be cooked in any sort of exciting way. It just ends up being bland and, you know, and if you're not too enthused about the sides, if you end up at a, at a Thanksgiving where the sides are a little bit, a little bit out there, a little bit avant-garde, you know, you could end up in a situation where, you know, you're, you're going to lean heavily on the bread option, whether it's cornbread or whether rolls. And, and I like to think that even bad bread typically at the meal is still pretty good. You, you, know, you know what you're going to get. You can slather some butter on it or you can put, you know, some sort, you know, you can eat it with gravy and kind of, you know, dip it in the gravy, what have you, you can usually get good value out of the bread and the rolls. Um, So I go with FAU, which is a little bit off the beaten path, but I think of it this way is that even the years when we've kind of doubted FAU, last year was one of them for a large part of the season. They, They typically come through. I mean, they're a consistent regional contender, even in the face of, you know, some challenges for that program, whether you talk about, you know, uh, facility or Conference USA not being as strong as it used to be. Uh, they've got a lot of challenges there, and they continue to be really, really consistently good. Um, and they're easy to get behind. Rolls and cornbread, I don't think anyone has gone to a Thanksgiving and is like, no, I don't think I'll have any bread. No, thank you. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, think anyone's no. ever passed on the bread. Um, so bread's easy to get behind. A lot of support. I feel that way with the Owls under John McCormick. He's just, you know, one of those coaches that you, you know, easy to talk to, you know, fun to talk to is an affable guy. I think it, it's a program that's easy to get behind and support, uh, you know, much like rolls at Thanksgiving dinner. We have reached dessert. Of course, that is pumpkin pie. And so it's dessert and, and therefore it's fun. And that's Mississippi state. The new dude. It's fun. It, it's uh it's a celebration. There are, there are a lot of people there that are, that are just there enjoying themselves. And that's what dessert is. So in this Thanksgiving world, pumpkin pie, Mississippi State. Makes sense. Um, I went with 
well, I guess I'll put it this way. So pumpkin pie is kind of a no frills dessert. You know, you put some whipped cream on there, but that's kind of tends to be the extent of what you do with pumpkin pie. So it's kind of no frills. It's also to the point I made earlier with my hot take about the Thanksgiving food not being on the front of mind at other parts of the year. I think this is particularly true of pumpkin pie. I'm sure there's someone out there, maybe maybe your dad, Teddy, who will reach for <laughs> <laughs> will reach for a pumpkin pie at some time of year other than Thanksgiving. But for the most part, this is a dessert that has a very specific time of year when it is at the forefront. And that's in the fall, specifically in November around Thanksgiving. And so my comp is Cal State Fullerton. Uh, we talked about this with Larry Lee a couple weeks ago, but you know they're they're a program that they've had years. They've ended up in Omaha, where you would not have you know you would not have bet on them getting there in mid-April or even into May. Some years they just haven't looked like they were a team that could could get there, but they end up getting there. They play well down the stretch. So much like pumpkin pie, which gets overlooked a lot of the rest of the year, but comes in clutch at the certain time of year. That's Cal State Fullerton and coming through in the clutch in June to get to Omaha. All right. So those are our Thanksgiving college baseball meals. Um, Hopefully you had some fun with that. I know we had some fun putting it together. And if you want to get in on that fun of putting it together, Joe and I would be thrilled to see how you think the college baseball programs align with the Thanksgiving meal. Let us know what you think. We're out there on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. So send us your thoughts on either our menus or create a menu of your own. We, uh, we would love to see what you guys come up with and, and feel free to sub out the, the sides. You know, again, things are different regionally. I, I felt like I took a poll. These were a lot of the more popular ones. Uh, but if you're like Brian Haydad, and you just need mac and cheese at Thanksgiving and, and you want to take out sweet potatoes or whatever, go for it. Hit us up on Twitter with your college baseball menus. You can also, while you're, while you're at it, we would love it if you subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your podcasting app of choice, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to podcasts, we're there. And if you can, leave us a review uh, and a rating. That would be uh, great as well as it helps other people to find the podcast. You can check out all of the great content over at baseballamerica.com. Hopefully there's enough there to get you through this holiday weekend uh, before we come back to you in December. I can't believe it is almost December already, uh, but we will be back here on the podcast next week uh, as we uh, as we move into December, ever closer to opening day. So again, we want to thank Notre Dame coach Link Jarrett for joining us. We want to thank you for listening. He's Joe Healy. I'm Teddy Cahill. We'll see you next week. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.